Hi everyone and welcome to The Mind Behind It. My name is Huda. And I am Sahil. My name's Grant Giles, clinical hypnotherapist and psychotherapist at the Australian Institute of Applied Psychology. My background is from elite sport. So I was an athlete when I was a younger, professional athlete for quite a, a long time, maybe 12 years or so. I'm traveling and racing. And then I got into coaching off the back of that. And that became the place where I was able to apply my talents best. I felt like I had a fairly good talent and potential for coaching. And so we ended up with 15 professional athletes that I was coaching for eight years. And that work was fantastic. And it taught me a lot about human nature. And I... I became more interested in the psychology than I did of the, in the physical application of it. So I ended up studying, well, actually I was using hypnotherapy, to be perfectly honest, with some of my athletes for preparation. And then it just became a natural progression. Okay, if I'm going to use hypnotherapy, perhaps I should study it. And other than that, I mean, for about the last 15 years, I've been studying, well, the spiritual side of psychology, went to India, done a lot of workshops on ego psychology, all different types of psychology, you know, read texts from all the masters and applied that through coaching athletes and to my own life, of course, because that's why I was doing it. I've ended up at a point where now I'm working with the general public in uh, issues like anxiety, depression, uh, OCD, you know, all sorts of, of problems. And I still work with athletes at the same time. So it's a it's an interesting dynamic that I find myself in, but I'm really passionate about the psychological side of human nature and what our potential is and what our talent is when we really inquire and investigate into the conditions of our own lives, you know, and how they, how they unfold. Wow. That's a lot of stuff that you've done, and I love that you've sort of added hypnotherapy to this. So where, why hypnotherapy? Is there a particular reason for why? A long time ago when I was racing as an athlete myself, I can remember going to my GP and saying, look, I've got this problem where I'm having this really long down period in my performances where I'm just, I'm not applying my potential here because I'm losing contact with the process. And I said, can we do some blood tests? He flicked a card across the table at me and he said, you don't need blood tests, you need this guy. And it was a registered psychologist who practised hypnotherapy. And, I, and his, his name was Arthur Jackson and he was in Sydney. And I worked with Arthur for about six weeks and he completely restructured the way that I applied my racing and the way that I applied my process in terms that instead of standing outside of the process... I became the process. And after that, I really started to perform really well. And that was my first taste of the power of visualisation, hypnotherapy, and just working with the facets of the mind that, you know, divorces from our potential and our, our talents. When you say hypnotherapy, I picture someone laying on the couch hypnotising you. Is that how it works? When I think of hypnotherapy, what I think of, of is calm state visualisation visualizing from the felt sense so so you're you visualize that you're actually in the situation that you want to work with more or less and then you visualize what you want to occur there 
you know, or, or, the, or you make the, the structured changes to thought patterns that you want to apply to that situation because our thought patterns are, you know, they're repetitive, they're cyclic. Is this similar to manifestation? Is that similar to that? Yeah, in a way, because look, the, the bottom line is when we look at our lives, let's use this analogy where, where focus goes, energy flows. We can be talking about professional athletes. We can be talking about someone with anxiety. We can be talking about somebody who's got a block in the corporate world where focus goes, energy flows. So if you follow your thought patterns, if I say to you, let's, let's take a full scat page and write down every, every thought that you have every day, you'll find a cyclic pattern. You'll find a repetitive pattern. And that repetitive pattern might be saying something that's negative, and when your energy goes in towards that kind of negative thought, negative emotion, sense perception, then that's what's going to manifest. So that whole power of manifestation deal is actually true because we do manifest our own realities. And sometimes we don't realize that until we're in an awful mess. Well, I've, I've kind of been doing a lot of work on myself in the past year or something about you know, kind of figuring out what my thought cycles are because I've suffered from anxiety for years. I did want to ask you, a lot of people, especially in your field when you were an athlete, it's it's an interesting one to say, I didn't feel in contact with the process. What was that like? How did you identify that? So like you, Sahil, I, I had crippling anxiety from the time I was a little kid, which is part of the reason why I've ended up here. And as an athlete... I would overthink things to the nth degree. I'd be that anxious before a race that I'd be so over-aroused that I'll, I would just be disassociated from, from that process. I wouldn't actually be in it. I'd be sort of standing outside of it. And anybody who's listening who's had anxiety or knows the nature of anxiety, it's very much like that, isn't it? It's like you're almost disassociated from self. Mm-hmm. Like you're losing contact with yourself. So the feeling was one of not being fully present with that process and the physical body it follows and so when the mind's not fully functioning in in the way that it could the body follows suit and then it's very easy to misidentify the problem as a physical problem i guess the mental health symptoms also manifest themselves in a physical way later on anyways but we start to think it's outside in rather than inside out which is what you were talking about Yeah, I was going to say that's absolutely right. One of the reasons I personally that I went to India was because I'd realised at some point that I'd spent my whole life focused on the the outer manifestations of life without really realising that there was something inside that was observing that. And can I turn this outward focus around and bring it back inside and find out what the truth is in there and, you know, start to work on releasing the traumas and the, the safety mechanisms and protection mechanisms that keep us safe when we're too young to keep ourselves safe. Based on that, you said that for hypnotherapy, you, you want to be in a calm state with visualization a lot of people really overcomplicate visualization because there's so many different variations of it. So a two-part question is, one, what do you define as a calm state and how can an everyday person get there? 
And second, when you're visualizing, do you visualize specifics or do you visualize a general thing or a situation that you want to be in? Well, that's a loaded question. And, and it's interesting because for me, as a therapist, each session is different. Each individual mm-hmm. is completely different. And I, I never treat them the same way. But let's take somebody who, who's very anxious, who has that feeling of disconnect, perhaps panic attacks. To, to build a visualisation, you, you can do all sorts of things, but you could, you could basically, let's lose, use, I like to use analogies and metaphors too. Yeah, me too. And, yeah, and sometimes I use the ocean as a, as a metaphor. So you create a, a visualisation for somebody who doesn't get any peace around imagining that they're the ocean. And then you get them to visualise and imagine that the expansion that's in the ocean and that that ocean has no sides, it has no bottom, but it has a surface that is affected by wind, waves, chop. It can get very, very chaotic on the surface, but underneath it's still still. There's still peace, there's still calm, there's still expansion. And when you have, a, especially an anxiety client, visualise that, they get into contact with their own inner expansion, their own inner state of calm that they don't even realise that they have inside them because they're so used to disassociating, moving away from, looking for safety in the outer world. So to bring them back in to realise that there is a safe spot inside them, that, that can be absolutely massive for some clients. And when you talk about the external measures of safety that people kind of take on what sort of examples are they like what's what types are we talking about here you you could literally if we if you look at safety right we we, we anchor ourselves to all kinds of things relationships careers houses cars you name it all those things are on an outer level all those things are absolutely 100% transient. You might be in the, the most solid relationship ever and overnight it's over for, yeah. for, a, for a myriad of reasons. Mm-hmm. Or you might be in a, a fantastic career where you think your, your path is linear and the next thing you find yourself on the street. I mean, let's take COVID for an example. Who isn't struggling and how many businesses have gone to the wall? I've seen people up this end of the coast. So many businesses have gone to the wall. So those those uh, attachments that we have are not solid. They're transient. Mm -hmm. So they come and they go. And so it's to look for something that's not transient. When we move back inside and and connect to something deeper, where you realise, you know what, that regardless of what happens, this can't be removed, can't be taken away. So there's always that safe zone. And while ever we look for the answers on the outside, we're subject to to the dissolving of that that safety you know something that Sahil and I were talking about a lot as well is how people can't often sit with themselves and COVID has been one of the main instigators of that you know where people have had no choice but to sit with themselves and a lot of people have hated it I speak to a lot of you know friends and family who always say I get really bored at home and I mean what is boredom as such like can you can you tell me yeah, why do we get bored? What, I mean, isn't there enough to do? Here's the thing, okay? Like, let's. The, this situation's fantastic. Like, as negative as it is, never have we had to reflect on our own life, like like we are right now. And 
I don't know if you've seen the stats on relationship breakup right now, but it's frightening. And it, it's like a it's a it's a pressure cooker situation where people who have been together and uh, I don't know out to work, out exercising, shopping, going with friends, doing all the things that they do are all of a sudden stuck under the same roof, you know, for hours and hours a day, and there's nowhere to move except to have to turn around and look at your shit. And e even if you're an individual, that's, that's the truth. And there's this raging discomfort taking place at the moment. Like even, let's, let's, let's just take, I'm in a men's group where, where, we, where we share, and there's nine of us. And we've been together since 2009. Now there's nine guys in that group, five or six of them are in serious relationship trouble since this started. And it's like, holy smokes, look at this. Look, look how we, we look out outside ourselves to relieve the inner boredom. I mean, that's the bottom line because we, this is maybe sounding a little esoteric, but it's like, if you're not comfortable in your own skin and we're not completely at home in our own skin, then when the outer attachments get taken away from us, the whole world blows up. Mm. And, and then... You know, that there's this there's this coming back in where you have to look at what is the nature of boredom, you know? And I don't know about you, but it doesn't matter. Let's just take any new adventure that you undertake, right? Like, doesn't matter what it is, new job, new sport, new partner, blah, blah, blah. Like, you get a new partner, you have this intense limerence. If you could explain limerence, actually, and I, I would actually like, if, if you don't mind, I would like to talk about limerence because I think that's a huge thing that a lot of people fall for oh no i mean on a chemical level there's oxytocin there's there's dopamine there's there's melatonin there's all these brain chemicals that are swirling around in that in the initial stages of a relationship where you're falling in love with somebody and it, it literally is a fall you fall into love with them and it's intense and and then when it you know it starts to draw back it's hugely confronting now, here's the thing, like where, where limerence is concerned, we have this idea that it's the other person who is responsible for our limerence. And I think on a, on a deeper level, all it is really doing is uncovering something inside us that is far more profound that we get a short window into and then it closes up again because the sameness returns, if that makes sense. Yeah. So the sameness as in, you know, I guess we have that high and then the reality of our lives return because we're off the roller coaster. Yeah, we, we move away from the, the mundane boring in our lives into something really intense and then we're forced to move back in. And it's like, it's mo it's like moving back into an old unit. It's like it's tired, it's stale, but it's only tired and stale because we're not actually focusing on it we're not tidying up our own room so we're always trying to get out of it so the mm -hmm. question is how can we keep this limerence going or not not the intensity of it but the freshness hire a cleaner and, yeah hire a cleaner <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. which 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 could be a therapist see what a great yeah, exactly. metaphor that was thank you thank you Grant. <laughs> spend my life doing. <laughs> what my friend a good friend of mine so she her and i were talking about this sort of thing about relationships actually she just told me like we were talking about lockdown and now her and her partner now both work from home together and 
she says that she absolutely loves it. And she's like, you know, we both are so excited that we get to hang out with each other all the time. And it's just made their relationship stronger. You know, I hear that and I think that's awesome. But then I hear couples that are like, yeah, we just get bored. Like we're over this. We're really like, uh, I think you've really got to put it in the forefront rather than just in the background when it comes to relationships. You can't just put it on the back burner. If they're this, and that's the reason this has been the biggest teacher, and even for, for myself, like it, the holes in the relationship are exposed in areas where you think you're solid and everything's fine and dandy. You actually can find out that that's actually not true, and it's not that, that there was any malice or any you know negative emotion attached to it. It's just that we go to sleep, and yeah. that's the nature of being a human being. If something's the same all the time. We go to sleep and then the, this level of resentment can build that we don't even know is present. Yeah. You know, and then, boom, there's an explosion. That's really sad but it's also really enlightening because it's like, okay, well, what can I do to keep this thing alive? And, and honestly, half the time it's just having the vulnerability to sit with your partner in, in all honesty and spend 10 to 15 minutes sharing what's happening for you. Yeah. Not attacking the other person, but just sharing. You know, I feel, I feel like disassociated from you. I don't feel like you're hearing me. I feel um, alone. I feel isolated. I have a building resentment, and you just unload that onto the table, and that's the definition. That's the way that you stop yourself sliding into an abyss. You know where where you get into trouble that you can't get out of, mm. and it's messy mire where. Why did you go to India? I ask this because I'm from India, right? I've, I've lived and I was born and brought up there. But yet, I never think of India as this place where people get this spiritual knowledge. For me, it's just total chaos. Like you, I was fascinated with India because it's such a big population. And one of the biggest culture shocks I ever got was getting off the plane in Mumbai and and driving down the road and just the amount of people, the poverty, just the expression of suffering. But the, the funny thing is also this amazing capacity for joy and happiness that the Indian people have. It, it amazes me. Apart from that is spent a long time looking into different modes of psychology. And India is you know, it, it's the spiritual home of modern psychology. A lot of, the, a lot of psychology that psycho, clinical psychologists use now are based in in those philosophies that came from there. The, the, all the greats that came out of India, Skidata, Ramana, all these these sages of, of years past, it, it's it's the home. Aranchala, you know, Vikitesh, where so many places in India where people have broken through, so to speak. And 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 it's not deniable. It's obvious. When you read their texts and you study the philosophy it's a breakthrough. And I think we're coming to a, a place now where we are so uncomfortable as, a, a, as not just countries, but as a species, that these philosophies, philosophies are starting to bubble through to the surface. And for me, in a time of my life where I was in crisis, I thought, I'm just going to go. I'm just going to go. And, I, and I'm really grateful that I did. What, what was the first thing you did once you got there? Did you go and study with someone or was it just kind of figuring out what happens? 
Here's the thing. I grew up in Wollongong, which is an industrial town. My parents were just normal work, everyday factory workers. And the least likely person to have this kind of whatever this was in me was probably me. Born to that background, but it happened. So when I got to India, yes, I, I went I went straight to an ashram. That's what I did. And then I immersed myself in their in their program where I spent, I don't know, like 18 hours a day looking at myself and being mightily uncomfortable, jumping all over the place like a like a jackrabbit, realizing all the ways that I'd hurt other people with my actions unconsciously through my own suffering that I did, which is which in my case was a size 10 and a half foot up my own ass all the time. <laughs> yeah, self-depreciative, lacking self-confidence, dark, brooding, moody, you know, and it affects other people. And and but then if you go into guilt and shame, then you perpetuate the same thing. We do yep. it again and again mm-hmm. and again and again. And I I can show you a long linear passage in my own life where this has played out again and again and again and at some point you reach a crisis point where you just go enough and I think that's um, the thing about India because that so many people who reach that point have gone to India to find to find that and people go oh, I went to find myself it's actually not true you go to find out what's real and that's that's really why you go and I think those philosophies have pointed towards that for thousands of years. And and now in this place, in, in this time, it feels like people are waking up. I'm like, you know, enough's enough. What are we going to do now? I think the concept of finding yourself is really fascinating to me because I've never really believed in that concept because I think what does it even mean to find yourself? Especially when you see lots of people that travel nonstop throughout, you know, backpackers and all that sort of stuff. They're just like, I've got to go and I've just got to, you know, I'm doing this to find myself. I don't know. My personal philosophy is that if you can't sit with yourself in one place on earth, like you will never find yourself chasing the idea of it. It's like another form of just escapism, in in my opinion. What do you think? Absolutely. I mean, it took me to go to India to realise that I didn't know to, I didn't need to go to India. All I needed to do was sit with myself. Like, yeah. And I haven't been back. But the the bottom line is, there is no duality. I mean, that's the thing. It doesn't exist. There is no outside self and inside self. There is just self. And if you if you look deeply into your own condition, this idea that we need to find ourselves creates a duality. I'm looking for myself. But the actual truth is you are just the looking. And, yeah. And that's the bottom line. Like, and, and it's like if you look at all the situations, all the challenges you've ever had, all the shit that you've been through, all the traumas, who is it that is aware that this has taken place? What is that energy inside me that sees all of this complexity out there? And so to find yourself simply means that you become aware of the fact that something is watching mm-hmm. and then you pay attention to that watching and life changes really fast mm-hmm. because all, all the repetitive, compressed, congested thought starts, starts to alleviate. It starts to quieten down. You become more and more still 
you need less and less in life and that's the definition of finding self is finding that observer where there is no duality. Yeah. There is no in here and out there. There's just this and that's it. Actually, going on that, that was one of the reasons why I wanted to approach you is because I've been going on and on about this amazing person that I found, Naval, Naval Ravikant. He's a venture capitalist and, you know, teaches all about being wealthy, healthy, and being happy. So those are his kind of three benchmarks for life. Uh, he was talking to Joe Rogan and Joe Rogan was like, yeah, I meditate and, you know, I pay attention to my breathing. And he's like, why? Why do you need to pay attention to your breathing? He's like, all I do is just I sit for an hour and do nothing. Mm. And he says, if I do that enough number of times, eventually my inbox reaches zero. And I thought, fuck, that's, that's really smart. Like when your inbox reaches zero, because we are only either thinking about the past or the future until we get to the point where we're thinking about what just happened now. And to reach that, you have to like go through all those thoughts over and over and over again until the brain goes, okay, now I'm done and I'm exhausted. Like that spoke to me a lot in terms of meditating because people go like they have to do something to meditate, which is, mm. which is quite annoying. And a lot mm. of people don't do that. But this way, all you do is just sit without distraction for an hour and just mm. kind of let your thoughts be rather than trying to suppress them or control them and bring your focus back to the breath, bring your focus back to the breath. Because that sounds really exhausting too. Meditation is an anti-doing. You have to find out what meditation is. That's, that's exactly right. It, it is a, a case of letting your inbox go down to zero. And if you, if you meditate and you block your thoughts or you try to direct your thoughts, all you're doing is putting them on the back burner for later on. And mm-hmm. for Carl Jung, the, the famous psychologist. It's like my favourite psychologist. Yeah, mine too. Mm. He coined the phrase, um, how does it go, um, uh, and until you look into your own darkness, it will direct the direction of your life and you will call it fate. And, uh, and I think that's the definition of meditation is sitting with what is and, and not avoiding it, sitting right in the middle of it. So if you've got a crisis that's going on and your whole body's on fire, you pay attention to the fire. If your heart's bleeding, you pay attention to your heart bleeding. If your mind's racing, you allow the mind to race and you just watch from the position of the observer. And if it helps to follow your breathing, great, follow your breathing. But, but I think there's far too much medita- guided meditation yes. out there. It's absolutely ridiculous. Honestly, yes. like it's so complex. It's like it's it's like any other thing that you do out there. You know, you you have to come in contact with your own darkness. Mm-hmm. in order for you to move through it into the light. I, I'm very fascinated by the name of your website, which is The Inconvenient Mind. Yeah. Why that? Why Inconvenient Mind? Because it's inconvenient. It is. And why, why <laughs> is that? Is it because the brain, the way it, it's evolved, it's supposed to be inconvenient so that it helps us survive or there's something fucked up or wrong that we are doing that especially in recent psychology, there's a lot of attacking the brain and going the brain's not good, but it certainly helped us survive so far, right? So how do you find that balance? See, this is the thing. Like we all have, we all have our, our upbringings and those upbringings conditioned. They're, they're, they're actually structured. And depending on, now you may have grown up as a Buddhist. I grew, grew up as a, I was brought up by Christian parents in the Catholic church. 
I've got that rigid conditioning that, that I had for 14 years straight. It's in me. There's nothing I can do about it. You know, it directs the way that I, I think about sex. I've got all kinds of fucked up ideas about who I am in the world and what I do to other people and I'm a sinner and I'm bad and I'm there, there. And it, it's like that conditioning, you can't call it bad. You can just, you can just say, well, it's the way my software was, was formed and it needs some upgrading. But it's not to go to war with the mind because the mind is a fantastic tool, mate. Now, you, you, you and I have experienced anxiety. We know the nature of anxiety. With people who come to me for anxiety, the first thing I say to them is that there is nothing fucking wrong with you. There is no such thing as a broken person. Mm-hmm. It's an illusion. Mm-hmm. And, Can we all just take a second to actually just observe what you just said? Can you repeat that? Yeah, no, nobody is broken. There's no such thing as a broken person. Anxiety is a fantastic protection mechanism. Now, I know in my own case, if I hadn't had anxiety, my God, I don't think I would have made it. I would have ended up an alcoholic or, or, or I, don't, I don't even know. It mm. could have gone any number of ways. But from sitting from this point of hindsight, I can look at my life and go, thank you. Thank mm-hmm. you for protecting me because I needed that protection. I needed that that scanning for, for threat because there was abuse, there was, you know, bullying, there was all sorts of complex trauma in there that I needed protection from. The adults, God love them, didn't have the capacity from the place that they sat to provide it, so my mind provided it to me. If there's a problem with it is, it's still doing it and now it's not needed. <laughs> And something that we were talking about is how we just know when something isn't right. I was watching, you know, Dr. Phil. There was this young woman and she was basically born in a household where they sexually abused her, her parents. So she would just get thrown into the cupboard and she would cry. And the fact that she would cry instead of like, think, oh, this is okay, this is just life, shows us that we understand pain very early on. And we understand that this is wrong very early on. So would you say that that's just inbuilt in us? Yes, absolutely. I mm. think it's inbuilt. Okay, let's look at it this way. A baby's born, right? And, and it is the trauma. Birth itself is a trauma. I mean, you've been one with your biological mother for nine months and then all of a sudden they pull you out and they throw you, they take you away from the one person that you're bonded with and they throw you onto a cold table and turn you upside down. But the thing is, the first thing that the baby starts doing is crying, mm-hmm. releasing its emotions, venting. Mm-hmm. And then people have babies and they go, well, it won't stop crying. And, and you know, it, it, but babies are a clean slate. They don't have this structure yet. Mm-hmm. But they already have this instinctual ability to move energy that we lose contact with. So when something's occurring that isn't comfortable or the energy builds up, they cry to release that energy and that releases hormones that help them relax. And then as we grow and get older, we're told, don't cry, don't mm-hmm. release mm-hmm. your emotions, don't, don't show your anger, all these bullshit concepts that we're taught that, that end up, we're like a, a pressure cooker. So if somebody's abused or sexually abused and they cry, then absolutely that's an inbuilt response to a deep, deep trauma. And, yes, of course, how could you not know that that was 
that wasn't right. I mean, kids are way, way, way more smart, way more intelligent than we give them credit for. 100%. And, and in some ways, what is the purpose of self-inquiry, inner work, um, psychology, in, in, a, in some aspects, is to turn you around and take you back to what you started with. There yeah. it is. You're angry? Hit a fucking pillow. You're sad? Cry mm-hmm. with, with everything you've got. Put everything you have behind that emotion. And what will you find? That the anger turns into sadness. That the, you know, that the crying turns into love. Like it, it transmutes. It, it moves. It shifts. And mm-hmm. that's that's what babies already do. And we just unlearn it. On that topic, you know, we were talking about how from the age of zero to 14, you mm-hmm. you had like the Christian upbringing. So if there was one thing for parents who are listening, how should they be bringing up their kids, especially with, with the upbringing that they've had and the conditioning that they've had? How do they get away from that when a child is born? And also just to add to this, this is something I say, well, I say because a friend of mine said this to me and it really stuck. And she said that when you're religious... And you have this idea that there's a higher power out there that will basically put you in hell for all your wrongdoings and put you in heaven for your good doings. How do you then allow your child, who who you love and you want the best for, to do wrong things when you know that the outcome is going to be hell for them? And so that's why we often have parents that are overbearing that want us to do the right thing because they love us and they should in a way because... Technically speaking, it is the right thing for them. In their heads, there's a hell and there's a heaven, right? They want you to go to heaven. Why wouldn't they want you to go to heaven? So then there is going to be that automatic pressure. So to reconcile with society what they think is wrong, how do they kind of do that? Do you have any, I guess, personal ideas or philosophies on this? Yeah, I do. I've written a lot of blogs about this this very subject. You know, here's my here's my skinny on how I think an effective schooling would be for, for a child, a young child. First thing is, from the parent's perspective, when you think about your child's welfare, you think about love. That's the first one. L-O-V-E. Sounds really wishy-washy and esoteric and blah, 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 but it's true. If, imagine if we directed the course of our, our children's lives based on nothing else but that love. So then they they go to school at five years of age and in kindergarten, the first two years of their lives is spent studying the nature of their own existence. Imagine that. Let's go out into nature, into a field, and you you tell me what you can sense, what can you feel, because those kids are still in contact. At that age, they're still in contact with that ability. And to get them to focus on the nature of their own being, not the doing, the being, and then they spend two years in that self-inquiry. And then they come out of that and move towards an education system that's in alignment with that knowledge. Imagine the human beings that come out the other end of that. They're profoundly different to how we've been brought up with all those rigid structures. As far as religion goes, I mean, there is a heaven and a hell, but it's inside our own heads. And, and we apply it to ourselves and and our parents had it applied to them and the, and the generation before them and them and then and then. Sooner or later, 
this growing awareness that we're having, and we are having it because we're here discussing it, it's like, well, here's the opportunity. It's coming. Like somewhere along the line, there has to be a circuit breaker. And and for me personally, that's that's my idea of a circuit breaker. Let's spend that first formative five years informing them about what they are. In, to do that, you first have to know what you are, you know. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. if you think there's a heaven and a hell and, and fire and brimstone and all the rest of it, that's what you're going to perpetuate. Mm. But the more we have these discussions, the more that gets teased out and then we don't end up on shows like <laughs> Dr. Phil where we're <laughs> trotting out our traumas in front of millions of people, you know. like, a, mm. And I don't even make Dr. Phil wrong because re- realistically... From the position of, like, people say some people are bad. I don't think they're bad human beings. I just think there's corrupt structures, mm. so to speak. That's, that's what I believe. I think every single person is innately benevolent, even, mm. if, they don't, even if they don't know it. Yeah, and I do think that, you know, we're, we're put in a state of desperation and, you know, we're given the ideas of power and money in order to live a good life and to provide for the people that you love, that we, in that desperation, sort of act in such menacing ways anyway. It's a fight-or-flight response, just yeah. like anxiety is. Mm-hmm. And people talk about anxiety. Oh, I don't have anxiety. Yes, you do, because mm. your fight and flight is obvious in the ways that you act in business, in the ways that you fail to serve other people. Like, oh, it's not you guys, but, I mean, society in general, you know, yeah. it's splintered. Yeah, 100%. Let's talk about sort of OCD because we're running out of time as well, right? <laughs> I would like we've this conversation has gone in a different direction, but that's okay. You know, when we talk about OCD and rumination, rumination. you know, so we were talking about this just before and we put it down to rumination is a symptom of OCD. Would you say it like that as well or? Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. So can we then talk about strategies to mitigate that and I guess how you can break that cycle of repetitive thoughts? Sometimes I'll lay in bed and I'll be thinking about every single thing I have to do the next day. I've, I've gotten better at breaking that cycle personally, but on a professional level, how would you kind of give advice to people to do that? I, I look at OCD tendencies, rumination, worry as compulsive it's a it's a compulsion, it's and it's an unconscious compulsion. It's almost like and addiction. You could cover addiction under that too, I think, in, in some ways, because there's a reward. There's a reward system in place. You you enact that same compulsive behaviour, and there's some kind of reward at the end of it. And and to tease it out, you have to find out what that reward is. What is that reward that that makes me compulsive? Like. How does, it, how does it help? And there's a safety in that rumination. I'm, I'm safe when I ruminate like this because I'm, I'm sorting the possibilities of the next day into, into a categorical order that then I can carry out and it'll all fit. <laughs> but the bottom line is if you want intelligence, if you want um, clarity and space, you need to slow it down and quiet. And that comes down to having the trust that an empty mind is actually an intelligent mind. And, and I think that's the bottom line. And then it's allowing life to roll out and occur as it does. 
with the trust that you have what it takes to meet that challenge. And that's what OCD does. It tells us that we don't have what it takes to deal with the next moment. So we try to forecast it using the future or dragging the past forward. And when we're in those two states, future and past, we're out of the truth. And the truth is only this moment that we're in right now. And and that's not esoteric mumbo-jumbo, that's the actual truth. So this preoccupation with past and future is is just an absolute illusion because it actually doesn't even exist. When you look at it from that position, you can look at these rumination and OCD and those sorts of things as a coping mechanism to deal with the challenge that you think is coming based on a past that you've already had. And that's what rips us out of the present moment and makes us so freaked out. Mm. And then we regress into a five-year-old and a five-year-old freaks out when he's under challenge Mm -hmm. or she's under challenge. I think the idea of trying to break the cycle and suddenly we... We kind of aim to break the cycle and we think once we break the cycle, everything's going to be fine. And when that doesn't happen, we get disappointed and then it continues the cycle because we think about quick solutions. The brain's used to thinking about quick solutions and quick ways to get there. No, I was going to say, I I work with some change management guys in the corporate sector. and Most of the time, what I'm trying to do for those guys is slow them down. Let's just slow this down. Like the same as I would work with with an elite athlete. Let's slow this down. Tell me what you want. And and then to build enough space around it that they can find out what's actually true. And we are divorced from our instincts. I mean, that's the bottom line. We are instinctual creatures. And because we've used the mind so effectively to create this state of society and science and corporate growth and all the rest of it, we've started to ignore our instincts and that's getting us into a lot of trouble. It's causing more and more anxiety, panic attacks, OCD, depression, look at suicide rates through the roof. It's all because we've we've cut off from our instincts. The other sidearm of the um, inconvenient minds is called instinctual athlete for that reason. Let's get back to instincts. I've always wondered with, you know, people that are into sports as such, like athletes. You know, with their sort of frame of mind, it's all about the actual end usually, isn't it, would you say? Absolutely. So they don't really consider how they're feeling while they're maybe running or whatever activity they're doing. Athletes often look like a healthy version to me and I don't see them as dealing with so many issues because they're working out and, you know, people always say that, you know, if you're... If you're exercising, it's like you're a healthier person. And so when you pair that with athletes with, you know, mental health issues, it's like a, I I don't understand the correlation usually, but if you could explain that to me a little bit, because I didn't know that there was one. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, sport is the ultimate hiding place. (laughs) The ultimate. Because if you're a professional athlete, it depends on what sport, of course, but let's mm. just take endurance athletes, people who, if it's if they're triathletes or if they're marathoners, they spend, well, let's, let's just pull a figure out of the air, 30 hours a week exercising, training. Yeah. And then they're at the chiropractor, they're with the nutritionist, their whole, their whole life is structured. Yeah. I can tell you from personal experience, 
it's the best hiding place. And then when you come out of that hiding place, then you're really going to face it. And in sport, we have a big problem with post-career depression for that very reason. All the shit that you've hidden is going to come out like a rocket the second your career ends. From a working with an athlete in a process perspective, the, the idea behind the instinctual approach is let's get as connected to this process as we can. So let's remove the middleman. Let's remove this rumination, this worry, this future, this past, and get really present with the process to the point where you disappear in it. And I'll give you you a little example. I had a world champion paddler who came came to me who'd grown up in surf, and they they tend to be rough diamonds. And Mm. he says to me, I don't want you to give me any of this spiritual fucking esoteric claptrap shit, just want you to help me. You're the last resort I've, I've gotten in the boat the last two years in a row. It's a big crossing. It's like 32 miles across the, the wildest ocean in the world. Wow. And I said, okay, what's the problem? I get bored. <laughs> what, why do you get bored? Because it's too fucking long. It drives me crazy. I'm there, okay. So we, we did this hypnotherapy, this um, visualisation structure where he focused on when his mind started to get bored, to focus on what was happening with the board, what the ocean was doing, where the pain was arising in his body, and just like Sahil said in the meditation, to accept everything as it is right now, to go fully into the pain and let the the pain move through the body, the temperature of the water, the movement of the board, everything, it's just an internal process. He goes back the next year and smashes it to pieces. And ever since, he's won his age group there every year. And it's just a, all it is, is, an, is, a, is a refocus on instinct. It's, mm. it's refocusing on what's actually happening. That's really fascinating. Like I always say, I'm not into cardio because I get bored when I'm running or like whatever it might be. I just, that's literally my excuse you can try a different approach though right like next if you go out for a run or you go for a bike ride or any of those kinds of things ask your body what's happening the question is what am i feeling and go right into it like Mm. if you're running there's this tingling sensation in the legs that we're not even aware is there you Mm. know like it's like wow like this just feels really intense and then just to stay with that feeling and to not wander off in, oh, what do I do at work tomorrow? And then you get back from your run and you don't even know you've been on it. Whenever I run, um, I get a stitch within minutes. And so I just give up because I'm like, it hurts. <laughs> Stay with the hurt is what you're saying. Exactly. <laughs> That's but, true. But we, we just want to avoid hurt so much. Yes. We're such good avoiders of, of hurt and pain. pain. Yeah. Yeah. So the... The practice is relax into pain. Yeah. And the funny thing is if you have that practice when you run, you'll find you won't get that stitch hmm. because your, your diaphragm's tight. If you relax into the discomfort, you'll find that the oxygen will reach lower into your belly and that stitch will disappear. Wow. Be an interesting little practice for you. I do want to ask you something bigger, which, which I think I see is one of the biggest issues that I see with people is being in jobs that they fucking hate. Mm. And I just don't understand why is it such a big problem on such a large scale and nobody knows what to do with that, about it. 
I, I really would love your, you know, input in that. One word, trust. That, that, that's the bottom line. But your desire for trust has to overcome your need for safety. That's, that's my opinion on it. So in order to do that, you have to trust that you will have the energy and the flow to direct a change of life that can have you manifest yourself working in something that you actually love instead of something that you actually hate. And the reason that you hate it is because it feels safe and that makes you suffocate. And we mm. could apply that to everything, I think. I mean, it's it, so, it sounds really simple, but <laughs> but it isn't. No. And so, you know, when you have sort of, when you're in a position where you don't know what you want out of life, wouldn't that make it harder then? Then you have to ask. And and this is the thing, like we ask outwards. We ask outwards for for answers. You know, know, I want to change your career. I'm going to ask all my my friends, who's got a contact? Who's got this? Who's got Mm. that? You know, like. How can I find? How can I do this? How could I? And then the, you get overwhelmed because you're trying to think of a way out and there's no way out. Mm. But when you come back in and you ask the question, you know, what do I really want? Mm. What do I really want? And then to ask it in, in like a meditative state, um, sit down, get really quiet, and then ask the question this way inside, mm. what do I want? And then to wait for the answer and the and the answer. I don't know if you ever notice when you have an idea or a or a perception or, or a some kind of intuitive piece that falls for you. Which way does it come? And mm. and if you really watch, it comes from from down the bottom upwards. It comes into your head from below. Mm. It doesn't come from your head down. It's crazy amazing. So when you ask these questions and these answers come, they come upwards from heart or gut or instinct. Yeah, instinct. It, yeah. And, it's, and unless you ask the question, you never get the answer. And if you ask the question outwards, there's no answer to come because there's no answer out there. Mm-hmm. That's the, the, the yeah. connection to the trust element. Yeah, because I'm just thinking about like how you would navigate that for people that have so many responsibilities. And it's got... you. Just say it's me. You are that pe- person. What do you mean you are that person? Are you talking about me? Yeah. All oh, right. Yeah, rather than hiding behind other people, you are that person. So mm. how would Huda get out of it? Simple. <laughs> We're still scared to ask the question. Yeah, that that's that's what I would answer you to ask inwardly. Mm. What do I need? What do I want? And then wait for, for an answer and trust that it will come. And it sounds ridiculous, but it will come. I well, agree. Life will direct you in a in a in a it will it will align with the flow that you want, and it will give you what you want. But the the, the problem is, in the first instance, it can look like a disaster. Like it can tear your whole life apart and you think this is chaos and disaster and blah, 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 blah. And then all of a sudden you falls into place. Effort of hindsight, hindsight, two years later, you look back at it and go, I asked for this. <laughs> yeah, that's actually true. Yeah. I always look back at my life and go, holy shit, that was disgusting. And then I look at how far I've come and I go, yeah, you know what? It was meant to happen this way. 
So anxiety fits in there too. Like anxiety is hands down the best teacher you could ever get. Yeah. Or any other life challenge or any other negative thing that we see and project is a disaster. We don't know. It's true. Yeah. I've been through enough crisis in my own life to know that that's true. This is just not where, what's meant to be. Hmm. Like, can I trust on a deeper level and follow this and see where it's heading? Yeah. Because what's the alternative? Yeah, you, you resist. And if you resist, as we know, things persist. Like, yeah, we that's get true. Stuck. Yeah. We just get stuck. Yeah. And I think that that's a really good note. To end it on, I agree. To end it on. That was amazing. The website's called Inconvenient Mind. Um, Is it Inconvenient Minds? Yeah, it's it's inconvenientminds.com. Plural. Plural. .au. And, uh, yeah, if you want to, you know, get deeper into hypnotherapy and learn about it and, as you said, like, get to your true potential... I think you're a great person to talk to. Yeah, you offer athlete psychology and men's health. Yeah, and especially men's health would be good because yeah. I, I think men get victimized a lot these days. Mm. Yeah. So it, it'll be really beneficial for, you know. And do you have a podcast? I do. It's the Roaring Heads podcast. Yeah. Yes, I've had a listen to a few of those episodes. Yeah. yeah, look, thank you. I really enjoyed, I love talking about this. this yeah. Stuff. And I'd be more than happy to come back on and explore further if you guys are willing to do that. But um, yeah, hundred percent. The bottom line is we're all we're all it sounds esoteric, I know, but we're all one. We're all part of the same brush. There's no there, ri- there literally is no duality. So when we realise that, then the sense of compassion and service really becomes something tangible in your own life that you can apply. And yeah, that's the, that's the nature of it. Mm-hmm. Helping each other. Thank you so much, Grant, for coming on today and giving us your time. We really appreciate it. Cool. You too. All right. Thank you. Have a good day. See ya.